Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. If you've got your Bible there, open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is my last week of doing this. Supposed to be up to chapter 3 by now. Chapter 1 verse 13. Thanks, Bron. So 2 Timothy 1, starting at verse 13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You then, my sons, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardships with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he completes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not changed. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain, so they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, he will also, uh, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Thanks, Dave. We're looking at personal discipleship, or discipleship it's personal. And what the first verse that Dave read there tonight was that hold to the pattern of sound teaching. So it stands to reason that the first point would be personal discipleship holds to sound teaching. You'd probably be forgiven to think, for thinking that in our modern world that the church will accept anything. Uh, people look around the church and, and see what it used to be like and what it is now and, and, and sometimes see what they feel is a compromise of values. I remember when I was a kid... Um, I was christened in the Anglican church, or my family are Anglicans, and, uh, and they started ordaining women. And I think I must have been in about year three. See, the very, the shock of that happening. I remember that I was outraged. I was in year three. How dare they ordain women? That's just going completely against what's supposed to happen because it was not in my frame of reference. Um, 
I haven't compromised. I actually worked through that. If you want to talk to me about it later, we can talk. Um, I'm not just uh, up here. But, um, but yeah, I, but then we see across the age kind of what a tightening and loosening of commonly held acceptable behavioral practices of the church where they, they tighten up and then they loosen up and then they tighten up again. And, and I, ho- I believe that it's because they come to a revelation of grace. They kind of realize that, you know, it's not all about rules and regulations. And so they let some things go and then they kind of go, oh, but we've still got to hold to holiness and they tighten back up again. And there's kind of this constant tightening and loosening um, all across the ages. But we have to hold to sound teaching. So let's look at chapter three. I'm going to skip around a little bit tonight because this is my last week. Chapter three, verse one says, but mark this, well, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that not just sound like our world today? Does that like, seem like an apt description of our world today? Well, hang on, let's just look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Paul's talking here about the church. Everything that he just described, he's actually talking about the church because he's not saying that the world has a form of godliness but denies its power. He's saying that the the, the church, obviously people in the church, they've got a form of godliness, but they're denying the power. Now, verse 5, it says, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. So, So what do we do? What do we do if people in the church are living in a way that we know is against the Word of God? Well, and we know that he can't be talking about people outside the church. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 to 12, it says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate yourself with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat." These are full-on passages that we're talking about right now. And he's talking about people inside the church. He's saying, if you were to stop associating with people who were like this in the world, you'd actually have to leave the world because they're everywhere. No, no, I'm talking about the people who are like that, that are inside the church. Well, let me give you my thoughts on this. Because we can look at our culture and kind of go, wow, we're in such a bad place. We're in the worst place we've ever been. The world is, you know, getting darker and darker but you don't need to do much study of the first century of pagan tradition, of um, Roman tradition, of Hellenistic tradition to realize that actually we should be so glad we didn't live back then and we actually live in these times. Things compared now compared to then are actually a whole lot better. And so we, but we look inside the church now and I, I don't think that what I just read describes the bulk of our church. You might have a different opinion um, and maybe you need to talk to me a bit later about who and what and why. Not really. Um, but, the, but our church doesn't, that description does not fit our church. So what does it mean about don't even eat with these people? Because obviously there are people who aren't following the word of God who are inside the church. Well, let me give you my thoughts on the passage. They're just my thoughts. And let, let me tell you how we as a church would approach it. Firstly, whenever Paul writes and makes these sweeping statements, these kind of broad absolutes, he's talking to churches in crisis. 
He makes these statements and, and, and because there's a specific condition that's occurred in the church or a circumstance that's occurred, and then that's having an impact on the broader church. In that scripture that I just read out, the specific circumstance was that a man was sleeping with either his mother or his stepmother. Now, that's hectic. Um, but also, it says that the church were only not um, correcting him but they were also proud of it. So this behaviour had proliferated into a kind of tolerance in the church of, of this despicable behaviour. And that's why Paul's saying, well, come on, we've got to write this. We've got to fix this. We've got to come down like a, an axe on this and make sure that it doesn't take place and take root. And, and he also says, with such a man do not even eat. In Middle Eastern times, to eat with someone was to condone their behaviour. And that's why they got so cranky with Jesus for eating with sinners and prostitutes and, and drunkards because they said, how can you possibly eat with them? Because they felt like he was condoning the behavior of those people by eating them with them. So there's a cultural thing going on. There's a very specific circumstance going on. Uh, and so he's writing to people in crisis. For us as a church, we don't have broad sweeping policies on sins. This sin, well, that's the policy for that. This sin, well, that's the policy for that. We don't have it. We ask questions. We have conversations. These are the kinds of questions. What is the spiritual state of the person? Are they a new believer? Are they even a believer? Are they a mature person, in, supposedly? Are they in rebellion or just learning? Are they just figuring stuff out right now? Have they had time for the Holy Spirit to convict them of what they're doing? Um, how is their behaviour impacting the church as a whole? What's the effect on non-believers and on their perception of the reputation of the gospel? Uh, according to Jesus' behaviour and according to the letters to the early church, how would they have dealt with this? What should be done? Is there a crisis? How can we not err as we approach this? And if we do have to err, will we err on the side of grace or will we err on the side of judgment for this specific circumstance? Do we have all the information? And these are conversations that get had. They just don't get broadcast. And so if you've been in a church that broadcasts those kind of conversations, you will be grateful for that. You'll be as grateful as if you had to have the conversation had with you that you wouldn't want it broadcast. We don't stand up from the platform and say, well, church, had to speak to Betty. There's no Betty's here tonight, is there? Good. She's been doing the wrong thing. Don't eat with her. We've talked to her. No, no we, don't, we, don't, we don't have those kind of conversations. We have private conversations with people that result in either them changing their behaviour or they might say, well, I'm not ready to be, you know, I, if, if you can't accept this or whatever, it, they might stop coming or they might keep coming and keep doing what they're doing and then that has another conversation down the track somewhere. There's conversations that take place. We don't have broad sweeping policies. Paul continues with this. He says, they, they are the kind who worm their way into homes. These are the kinds of people that are all those lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, etc., lovers of money. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. They're loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. They're always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janners and Jombras opposed Moses, they were the men who when Moses threw down in front of Pharaoh... And, and had a whole bunch of signs and wonders to tell him the will of God, which was to let his people go. Janus and Jombros were the Egyptian magicians who did all the same tricks and said, well, he's not that great. We'll point you away from the will of God for you, Pharaoh. And they did all those fancy tricks as well. Just as Janus and Jombros opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as their faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. 
And you know what? That so often happens in the church. When people are just a bit nuts or a bit full on or whatever it is, it, it becomes clear to people. And, and often that's just what happens. People don't take them on board because their folly becomes clear to everybody. Now, three, Paul talks a little bit there about his teaching and everything else. But in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned, because personal discipleship holds to a sound pattern of teaching. Continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you've known this for a long time, Timothy. Like you've learned it from a young age. You've got it on the inside of you. Trust God to breathe that into life and and trust us who have taught it to you. And then he says, all scripture is God breathed. This is an interesting concept. Some people believe that that men wrote it and God went, that's got my truth on it. And he breathed on it and ensured its endurance and permanence to continue through the ages, not go the way and fade like every other literary work, but ensure that it had that sense of aliveness to it. And then others feel like almost people kind of went into a holy trance and just wrote. And they were like, whoa, that's amazing. I can't believe I wrote that. But the fact is that there's a God element and there's a human element to the scriptures. And if we discount either, it's to our peril. If we forget that actually people wrote this book, but God inspired it, if we forget the people part of it, it's to our peril. If we forget the God part of it, then that's even more perilous. If we treat it like a good literary work or a good historical account, that is disastrous for us. It is God-breathed. It is God-inspired. It has life in it. It's like no other book. I've written through two Bibles now, or nearly nearly finished this one, um, and just written everywhere because you can keep getting stuff out and out of the Bible. It's just incredible. It's a living word. All It's God-breathed and is youthful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Scripture is not just there to make you feel good about your life. It's not just there so that you will um, live happy. It's there so that you'll get taught, that you'll get rebuked, that you'll get corrected and trained in righteousness. They're good things for your soul. They're good things for your heart. There's a dad that loves you and who is willing to do that. So that the man of God, and just let me digress, that, that word man means humankind, of God may be Thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. He's pulling out the big guns here. He's like, Timothy, God's here. Jesus is here. They're going to judge the living and the dead. And they're coming back. So I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Don't you feel like there's more access to find stuff that you want to hear than ever before? That if you want to find your truth, you'll find it somewhere. You Google enough times, you watch enough YouTube clips, you'll find a truth that suits you. The fact is, there's no such thing as your truth. There's no such thing as your truth. He is the way. He is the truth and he is the life and his name is Jesus. He is the truth. We don't have truth. What you've heard from me, the verse, first verse, keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. All the sound teaching always has to have the overtone of faith, hope and love. 
any preaching that's done should always have that overtone of faith, hope and love. If it's always condemnation, if it always feels heavy on you, then, then it's not being preached how it's supposed to because it says, keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith and with love. Let it rise up on the inside of you. Personal discipleship holds to sound teaching. Verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. People, hey? They love you. They leave you. <laughs> they don't even want anything to do with you. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt like that. But everyone in the province of Asia has deserted him. That's a hard day. Like, I don't know how you felt when some family members deserted you. But everyone in the province of Asia, I feel for Paul there. That's very sad. But personal discipleship says in love, though none go with me, yet still I'll follow. Though none go with me, yet still I'll follow. You know, there's Phygelus here, there's Hermogenes here, there's Demas in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. It says, do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. So they're the deserters, Phygelus, Hermogenes and Demas. And then there's the ones who Paul had to send. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia to see a man about a large spotty dog. And only Luke is with me. Uh, he had to send Tychicus to Ephesus and, and Luke stayed. So he's got those who deserted him. He's got those who uh, he had to send to keep the work going. He's got those who stayed like Luke and we read Anisiphorus. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus because he was not ashamed. And, and when he was in Rome, he searched out until he found me. So Anisiphorus stayed around. So he's got those who he sent, he's got those who deserted him, he's got those who stayed and helped, he's got those who harmed him. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, their teaching will spend, uh, spread like gangrene. Isn't that a great picture? Throw up that picture of that gangrenous foot that I had. No, I'm kidding, I didn't put a gangrenous foot. <laughs> but the teaching will spread like gangrene. Um, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroyed the faith of some. Imagine if we were here tonight and we're like, oh, sorry, guys, the whole resurrection thing, like the dead going to heaven, happened. <laughs> it sucks to be us, I suppose. Um, let's uh, have communion. Like, what are you going to do in church? But Philetus and Hermanius are telling people that the resurrection has already happened. Uh, also in chapter 4, um, in verse 14, it says, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So we've got those who have harmed him, Philetus and Hermanius and Alexander. And Hermanius and Alexander are two of three men that got kicked out of the church. Paul says to them, I've handed them over to Satan so that he might teach them not to blaspheme because they were telling and spreading um, a good news that wasn't real. They were saying that actually you don't have to listen to this whole Jesus thing. It's not really real. And... Um, and, and it says that he, he kicked them out of the church. Two of three men. The other man is the one who um, was sleeping with his mum. And so, like, the church is crazy in the New Testament. I'm just putting it out there. The deserters, the sent, the ones who harmed, the ones who helped, the ones who were dear sons like Timothy, we read. The ones who, like Timothy, there's nothing too big for him. Paul says, Jesus is coming back and we're all going to get judged one day. And, and actually, 
Um, you need to keep the pattern of sound teaching so that the gospel can keep going forward and doesn't die out. Like nothing's too big for Timothy. That's a big charge. But then also in chapter 4, he says to Timothy, when you come, verse 13 of chapter 4, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. There's nothing too small for Timothy either. Like Paul's just having a moment and he's like, um, can you bring that outdoor jacket and my iPad, Timothy? Can you just make sure you pick that up? I left it at Troas. And Timothy's like, absolutely I can, Paul. And then we get to verse 19, the end of the chapter. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Why? Because he needs to have his cloak. Eubulus greets you and so do Pudens, Vladimir's friend, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers. All these people. You know, we kind of brush over these names, but these are real people and real relationships that Paul has in the New Testament. There are those that have deserted him. There are those that he's sent. There are those that have stayed, those who are supporting him. And then the guy, Mark, he says, get Mark to come. Bring Mark with you. Who's Mark? Mark's a man that in the book of Acts, Paul wanted to go somewhere and he went on a ministry journey with a guy called Barnabas. And Mark went with them. But at some point, Mark got cold feet or something. We don't actually know what happened. He went home. So the next ministry trip that they go to, Paul and Barnabas are going, and Barnabas, who's known as the encourager, says, can I bring Mark? And Paul says, no, he ditched us last time. He's not faithful. He's not coming this time. And Barnabas is like, Paul, you can't ditch him after just one try. And Paul says, well, I am. He's not coming. And Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp disagreement about this that they part ways, and it's never recorded that they have ministry together again. Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus. Timothy takes Silas and does all the rest of his ministry with Silas. But here, Paul's in prison, and he says, can you get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to my ministry. So all across this Christian life and in church, we have relationships, some that are hard, some that are like sawdust, like hard grade that we rub up against each other and ugh, it's just awful. And then some that, that are just, you know, beautiful and like a big cuddle. You know, we kind of feel like church relationships should be perfect and, and that our, they're like family. But the problem is, yes, they're like family. <laughs> and there are those that turn against us. There are those that help us. There are those that harm us. And there are those that stick with us till the end. And we can expect all types so personal discipleship has to say, in love, though none go with me, yet still I'll follow. Chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Personal discipleship requires grace, buckets of it, loads of it. In order for Timothy to accomplish what he needed to, what Paul was instructing him to, he needed grace. Why? So he could forgive people? No, because grace is not limited to our forgiveness and forgiving other people. Grace is something that empowers us to live the life that God wants us to. If we will focus on grace and live constantly under the cover of grace, then we are less likely to enter into sin. We are less likely to hurt our fellow men. We're less likely to do the things that God says and requires of us not to do. Grace is what empowers us. Grace is what sustains us in the midst of our trouble. So we need buckets of it. Then, and I just endure hardship. Verse three, endure hardship. Personal discipleship endures. Endures hardship. The Christian life is not easy breezy. And if you respond to an, uh, you know, an old call where we raise our hand where it says God wants to give you a good life and he wants you to be happy and he's got life and life to the full, which he does. 
But his life to the full doesn't look like our life to the full always. The Christian life requires endurance. Even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. It requires faith to last the test. I look across this room and I see so many people who have lasted the test and who have, who have been through difficult times and are still here. That They haven't said, well, that didn't work out, God, the way that I wanted it to. And so... I mean, I'm through, but they've said, no, God, you've obviously got a plan for my life and I'll endure no matter what the cost. Three, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Do you find yourself constantly in the midst of church drama, in the midst of family drama, in the midst of workplace drama, in the midst of school drama? I'd suggest that you're getting caught in civilian affairs and I'd like to liberate you tonight to say you don't need to be part of that. Just hands off, whatever. Oh, they're saying something? Cool. I'm going to the water cooler. Oh, that's where they are. Done it. Um, Just stay out of it. You don't need to have an opinion on stuff. Like, to me, it's been a little bit tricky to stop having an opinion on stuff because I don't know what to talk about. But it's been the most liberating thing I feel like I'm silent a whole lot more, but I just am not spending as much energy in having an opinion on stuff that doesn't require me to have an opinion about. I can just get on with stuff. Don't get involved in civilian affairs. Just please your commanding officer. That's Jesus for us. What do you want me to do, Jesus? I'll not talk about that. That's great. Thank you. I'll I'll happily not do that. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules doesn't say what rules it's talking about there. It doesn't mean like, we don't know if it means staying in the lane. We don't know if it means training. We don't know if it means because back then in the Olympics, they competed naked. So maybe it just means stripping everything away and just running the race. But it says you have to compete according to the rules in order to get the crown. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Farmers, they sow and then they wait and then they wait and then they harvest And they have to wait to see what comes of it. And we will need to wait at times. It says in verse 7, because Kant doesn't give us much detail about exactly what he's talking about there. It says, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. I feel it's like like Paul just started writing and then he was like, yeah, I don't really know what that means. Reflect on what I'm saying, because Jesus will give you insight into all this. I encourage you, reflect on those few verses this week and let Jesus give you insight into them. Personal discipleship endures hardship. Finally, personal discipleship considers eternity. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the elect being Israel, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him... We will also live with him. And this is particularly poignant for Paul because he's about to die. He's in chains. He knows he's gone to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. Had it prophesied over him. Imagine if one of our guest speakers came. So I just really feel I've got, I've got a word for the lady in the glasses here. Yep, yep, you, yep. Um, you're going to die for Jesus, okay? So 
or the best. Like, <laughs> it doesn't really happen. But a man took Paul's belt and said, the man who owns this belt is going to die when he goes to Jerusalem. It's like, dude, you just took it off me. Why do you need to say the man who owns this belt? But no, the man who owned that belt, and it was Paul, he's about to die. If we died with him, we will also live with him. But personal discipleship, it considers eternity. And so it's not the end. If we endure, because we endure as disciples, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Listen to this seeming paradox here. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What? Hang on. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we're faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. That's a seeming paradox. I feel like, because we read last week about the fact that if we deny him before men, he'll deny us before his Father in heaven. That once we accept Jesus and his Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. We are one. But if we take ourselves out of that equation and there's a whole, you know, the, the levels and the variance of this is, is very complex how, how much we're able to do that. But if we disown him, if we cut ourselves off from his grace supply, then, then we are now separated from him and he is able to disown us. But if we're just faithless, like if we're not making a conscious choice and, and, and separating ourselves from Him, if we're faithless, then He'll remain faithful to us because we're all going to get it wrong. We will all mess up at times. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And while we do have the power to not sin now and we don't sin and we don't need to sin, He still paid the price in case we do sin, as it says in Second First uh, John. So if we're faithless, He will remain faithful for He cannot disown Himself. I feel, I, I get really nervous about saying stuff like this because there's a whole thing about once saved, always saved or can you, you know, walk out of the hand of God and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like sometimes we can relax in the grace of God. We can rest in His grace. Like there's not this striving all the time. God, did I get that right? I remember... When we were kids, you know how most people say, do you promise? Yes. Pinky promise? Yes. Pinky blah, 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 physical challenge, whatever you do next? Yes. Ours was, if Jesus came back right now, would you go to heaven? Like, because we thought that if we told a lie and Jesus came back right now, we were lost. We were completely gone for eternity. That was what I felt like when I was a kid. But we can actually just relax in the grace of God, not so that I can keep living however I want to live, but so that He can keep working in me however He wants to work. Like Joseph Prince says, if He want to get all the glory, then He can do all the work. <laughs> if He wants to get all the glory, He will do all the work. He actually works in us while we rest in Him. Now, if we disown Him, like we don't get off scot-free. If we disown Him, He'll disown us. But if we just rest in Him, if there are times of faithlessness, then He's going to hunt us down. He's going to bring us back. He's going to pull us back into Himself. And we can trust Him to do that. If you've got family members who have wandered, trust in God. Keep pleading the blood of Jesus for them because He cannot disown Himself. And once joined with them, He's pulling them back constantly. He's constantly going after them and drawing after them. Now, if we disown Him, He will disown us but let's just relax in the grace of God. Don't constantly stress and worry about always getting it right. Did I disown you then, God? Am I gone now? Am I gone now? No, no, just rest in who He is. Rest in His love because He's hunting you down with His goodness and His grace and His mercy. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, if there's people here tonight that don't know you and want to know you, I pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to them. You say that you stand at the door of our hearts and knock. And Lord, I pray that people would feel that knocking tonight and they would open the door and they would let you in with a simple statement of, Lord, I give you my life. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for my life and I declare it over my family. I declare it over our church family and anyone that's ever known you in this place, God. Lord, I declare your faithfulness over them, even when they're faithless. Lord, that is so true in my life. There are times of complete faithlessness and yet you've remained faithful. And so, Lord, we trust you tonight. We thank you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.